We are starting in verse 9. You can start turning there in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. And we will, we will begin uh, this morning. Today we are going to have um, Andrew Appelt read our text for us. Um, we are in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through the first part of 23. Um, and so if you're there with us, I'm going to invite you to actually stand with us as we stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read it aloud. Um, and Andrew will read it for us. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the house, step, house stop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the things that, that and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to them, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful to be your children, and we're grateful today that we can sing about your promises, um, that, that, Lord, give us faith, everything for where we are today, where we may be tomorrow, where we will be in the end. You are a faithful God, and as we open your word, we understand that we need your help to understand it. So please, Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Let the words of our, of our mouths, that the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today, I want to talk a little bit about where we were last week and where we're headed today. Last week, if you weren't with us, we had the beginning of this story, right? This is a radical story that we are entering into as Peter... The Apostle Peter has been traveling all throughout the countryside of Judea, and then God is beginning to send him to non-Israelites. We are introduced to a man named Cornelius, who was a God-fearing man, a centurion, a, a, a captain sort of in the Roman army. He was not a Jewish man. He was not an Isra Israelite. However, he worshipped the God of Israel. He did not worship the pagan gods that he was surrounded by. And, and he, although he had not become a full-fledged Israelite, he did worship the God of Israel. And that meant that though, although he worshipped the true God, he was still sort of far off. He was still not a true Israelite. But as he is praying, an angel comes to him and tells him, you need to send for a man named Peter, who's down in Joppa. He's about 30 miles away from Cornelius. And then so Cornelius 
does what anyone ought to do when the Lord speaks to them clearly like that. He says, okay. And he sends um, two servants and a soldier who believe in Yahweh down to reach Peter. And that's sort of um, the, the immediate lead up to our text today. But remember what we talked about last week. Theologically, spiritually, we're in, a, we're in a much bigger setting than just a city named Joppa. Spiritually speaking, we are, in, we are on the, the cusp of this absolutely gigantic moment as God is finally bringing Gentiles into his people. That's a divide that I think many of us today have no honest, um, no good recognition of how huge that divide is. We're 2,000 years downstream of this. Right? We're used to access to God. We're used to Israelites and non-Israelites being able to come to God through Christ. But we have to think for a moment, I really want us to get this deeply into our brains today, that this is, in this time when this is happening, this is absolutely breathtaking news. That the Messiah that had been waited for for centuries had come to Israel, but he didn't come only for Israel. He came not only to his own, but also those who were far off. We read Ephesians chapter 2 last week, that those who were far off, the Gentiles, that God brought them near in Christ, that God had brought them near to himself. And even what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, a verse we talk about a lot in our church, is that God was taking all the nations of the world and he was making for himself a new nation, a new people, one for his own possession, characterized not by their skin color or their heritage, but characterized by being united to Christ in faith. And so this is what we see today as we go through these verses. We see God sovereignly leading and caring for his people as he's using them in his kingdom. God sovereignly leading and caring for his people as he uses them in his kingdom spreading. And we'll go through a few uh, sections here today. The first couple of verses are about the vision that Peter receives. The next section, 17 through to the end, is about the confusion that Peter kind of walks through. And then we're going to sit down and kind of apply that together. So the vision that Peter receives, starting in verse 9. Notice when this happens. It says it's the next day. Well, it's the next day after what? It's the next day after Cornelius had received his vision. So Cornelius gets his vision, Cornelius sends his men, the night comes and leaves, and then the very next day, Peter is praying at noon, the sixth hour of the day, up on his housetop, as these men are approaching the city. I think it's interesting that that detail is included. These guys are just about to arrive when God sends this vision to Peter. And then what does Peter see? He sees, I mean, imagine this for a moment, how wild this would be if you're praying, you're looking up into the sky, and you see what looks like a giant sheet coming down, and as it gets closer and apparently bigger and bigger, you begin to see that there's all kinds of animals on that sheet, from the continent you are on and the continent you are not on, right? There's, there are snakes, and there are buffalo, and there are... Um, starfish, and there are whatever, whatever you can imagine. And then something even more remarkable happens. God speaks to Peter, right? A devout Jewish man. Yes, a believer in Christ, but still a devout Jewish man. And he says to Peter, get up and eat. You're hungry, get up and eat. 
and then Peter says something remarkable, right? If God speaks to you, something that's pretty remarkable to say is to go, no, Lord. So Peter apparently is clear that this is God speaking. He recognizes the voice of God, not unlike probably the voice of Jesus that he had followed on earth for so long, but he says, no, Lord. Now, why on earth would he say that? Right? Why, why would he have the desire to say no right to God's voice? For us to get that, we have to understand, again, how radical it is of what God is asking Peter to do. We have no appreciation for this today, right? Because what he's saying here is that the dietary laws that Israel had defined themselves by for centuries, he wants Peter to get up and effectively break them. But the dietary laws of Israel, we have to understand this, they were not just the diet of Israel, right? This is not like my own heritage that makes me like to eat pasta a lot, all right? This is not like that at all. This is something that means so much more. These, the, the dietary laws were tied deeply to Israel being pure and holy. The dietary laws were part of Israel being special, a chosen nation picked out by God to be different from the world around them. As one commentator said, they are a reflection and reinforcement of Israel's election. Meaning, the very fact that Israel was God's chosen nation. It was constantly reflected, displayed, and reinforced by these dietary laws. This is a part of them staying ceremonially clean. Now why is that so important? Because they're the one nation on the planet that God had given them the rules by which to worship him rightly. And so they had to stay ceremonially clean or else how can they, they can't even go into the temple. They can't even go in there and then offer the right sacrifices that they're supposed to offer. Right? To disobey these laws was to cut yourself off of the worship that God had prescribed for his people in the Old Testament. And where would that leave an Israelite? Outside just like the Gentiles. And so when Peter hears this, he might just be a little stubborn. He might just be slow to understand this. I think we have to have some sympathy for if we were in his shoes, we would also want this to be nice and clear for us. Right? This is Peter who has been humbled by failing in the past and acting a bit presumptuously. I think that rightfully so, he's like, I don't know about this. Is this a test? Do I need to pass it? But God speaks to Peter three times in verses 15 through 16. The voice comes to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing, the sheet, was taken up at once into heaven. So to get it through to Peter... And to make sure it was clear that it was not an accident. Right, God said this three times, not just to get it through Peter's thick head, like he'd have to say it probably more to me to get me to understand it. But he went beyond that also, I think, to make it abundantly clear. I know what I'm saying. I know, God is saying to Peter, I know what I'm commanding. I'm aware of how important it is. And it is absolutely true. I want you to notice just for a minute how radical it is that there's only ever been one ethnic distinction on the planet that was sort of legitimate, we might say. 
There's only been one in the history of the whole world, and it was, it was ordained by God himself for a very specific time, right? And that, what, was that, what was that distinction, Jew and Gentile? As a pastor named Vodi Bauckham has said, that's the only one that ever has been set up, ever been um, sort of legitimate in any way. And yet, God is the one who then removes it. God is the one who fully and completely removes it, so that there is no distinction. But that's a radical thing. I'm sure just like Peter, you and I have had God, to, we have needed God to say things more than once to us to get it. Anybody ever had to have God kind of beat a lesson into your brain more than one time? Have to read a verse a few times before you actually get it. But notice God's patience with Peter. I think we see God's patience with Peter and his people on display here. That he doesn't just say it once in passing and then move on and say, I hope he gets it. And when Peter doesn't get it, Peter says, no, Lord. And God doesn't just immediately just like strike him down or something. He's a patient God, a patient father who is teaching his kids a radical lesson. And so he understands that he will do it slowly and carefully. So don't for a moment think that God is impatient with you. When you get really tired of maybe facing the same sin and not being strong enough to overcome it yet, when you, get, when you think that God is angry and impatient with you in your need for constant grace, He is not. He is teaching you, caring for you, leading you, sanctifying you one step at a time. He doesn't care if he has to say it two, three, and four times as he constantly calls you into holiness and gives you his grace to pull you there. And notice what God says in verse 15, what I made clean. There's a reality that these were unclean, but he has made them clean. So don't call them common. There's two really important things about these phrases in verse 15. The first is I want us to see this as a continuation of the book of Mark. If you turn to the book of Mark, just a few pages to the left in your Bible, you go to Mark chapter 7. We'll have it on the screen, but I'd love it if you have your Bible to turn there with me. So in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 14, Christ has just confronted the Pharisees, and he's confronted them about the fact that they are really good about following the commands that they want to follow. They're really good at following the traditions of men that they've set up. And sometimes they're so good at that that they use the traditions of men to get around what they know the commands of God to be. And then so Christ is talking about purity laws. And he says this, starting in verse 14. And he called to the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of a person by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Translation, you don't get it either. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. I don't think I need to go into the biology lesson for us today. Thus he declared all foods clean. 
And he said, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The Apostle Peter was a primary source for Mark as Mark was writing his gospel down. He wants to keep that in mind. But what is Jesus here saying? Jesus, the full revelation of God, the true prophet, the truest of true prophets of the law of God, comes to the earth. And he said, I have fulfilled all of these ceremonial rites and rituals. And so he's telling them, you are not clean by diet, you're not clean by heritage, you're not clean by perfect sacrificial um, observance, you're not clean by anything else except by faith. And so we have to reckon with this lesson, what defiles us and what makes us unclean is not stuff. Stuff in this world does not make you unclean. That might sound weird at first, but it's actually kind of bad news for us. Because it's not the stuff out there that kind of hijacks us and makes us unclean, right? We're just walking around, we're totally pure and perfect, and we step in the wrong puddle, and then all of a sudden we're unclean because evil happened to us. Instead, it's our own coveting for that stuff. It's our greed, it's our thoughts, it's our lust, it's our pride. Sin is not just outside of us. That's how we think about sin a lot. Sin is like a pile of actions that we kind of build up, but it's always external to us. Sin is stuff we do out there. Mistakes, accidents, wrong decisions. But sin is not just that. Sin is not just external. Sin is internal to us. Sin's an actual identity and a nature that comes in and invades us and turns us away from God. So you and I need a redemption. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior that does far more than just purify the stuff around us or our own skin and bones. We need a Savior that does far more than simply purify the stuff around us and external to us. You need a Savior that does far more than get you to behave the right way. Gets you to kick that one habit that you don't want to do anymore. You need a Savior that is much, much bigger than that. You need a Savior that can actually make you and I clean. He can actually take our defilement, our impurity, our dirt, and he can actually take it away. And the great truth of what Christ came and proclaimed is that this is the exact Savior that God has provided. A Savior that gives a final and full and complete salvation so that there is no impurity left. So that for any and all those who come and call on the name of Jesus Christ, they are not what we once were. Instead, they're a new creation. A perfect, in the eyes of God, new creation. And so you and I have to understand this today. We don't draw near, we know this, we don't draw near to God with food. But we have to understand, we do not, you cannot 
draw near to God with all the external actions you could ever come up with. You can't come and draw near to God because you take communion in a church building. You can't come and draw near to God because you finally have stopped looking at pornography after 10 years. You can't come and draw near to God because you don't lie as much as you used to. Every single one of us, no matter how holy we think we are, and no matter how unholy we might think we are, there's one way that we get to draw near to God, and He has opened it wide, and He says, Come, all of you who are defiled. Come, all of you who are broken. Come, all of you who are in need, and find right here and right now a perfect, complete Savior. And that's how we are made clean. And notice what God says again in the book of Acts here in verse 15 of chapter 10. That he has made clean. That word for clean, the root of that word, most of the time in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, refers not to food, but to people. It refers most of the time actually to lepers. Right? People who have a disease that would get them kicked out of the community and they had to be healed from it and then they had to be declared clean in order to enter society again. That's where that word comes from. So I think right away God is saying, hey, I'm actually not just talking about food to you, Peter. Look at verse 17. Read 17 and 18 with me. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So Peter is sitting there inwardly perplexed, completely confused. What exactly does this mean? And as he's doing that, it just so happens, right? Just so happens and the perfect providence of God that these men essentially knock on the front door of the house that he's at. And then in verse 19, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit came and said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Reminder, what is it that Peter has to say? The message about Christ. God has sent us to you, Peter, so that you can tell us about Jesus. And the Spirit nudges Peter along right before these men come, right? And he says, hey, these guys were sent by me, so you need to go with them. In your Bible, it probably says without hesitation, without delay. Again, the root of that word is actually a word that also is often translated distinction. Peter, I want, to, I want you to go with these men without distinction. Now, why is that, I think, maybe a better translation in this verse? Let's think about where that word is also used in the scriptures. In James chapter 2, what are we commanded? To not have partiality among the church. Right? To not treat this person, the rich person, nice, and the poor person bad because we like rich people. To not treat the person who's like us nice, and the person who's not like us bad because we like people who are like us. 
And in that exact passage in James chapter 2, it says, have you not made distinctions among yourself? And what would a Hebrew man be tempted to do when non-Israelite men show up at his house and say, hey, come and stay in our house? He'd say, maybe, I'm not supposed to do that. And so God says, go with them without distinction. Even before Peter didn't know where he was headed, Peter didn't know that these men were non-Israelites, but God is leading him step by step to where he needs to be. I want you to notice how these men are aware of how Peter might be nervous to go with them. They say, Cornelius, he's a God-fearing man, and he's well spoken of by, Jewish, by the Jewish nation. Peter, like they're, they're nervous about how Peter might receive them. So they're like, hey, um, don't worry, like he's well spoken of. Like he's really kind, he's really generous, he's really great. The Jewish nation loves Cornelius. So you notice that tension is real in this text. There's a real way in which Peter could decide, I'm not going to go and do that, because I don't think I'm supposed to. As God is kind of removing the standards of the Old Covenant, the separation of Israel from the nations, as he's removing those step by step. But notice how God is continually revealing the glory of the gospel to Peter in these little ways. What does it make Peter do that he might not have done before? makes him willing to receive these guys into the house he's staying, which would have been already one sort of issue under the Old Covenant. And not only that, he also says, I will go with you and stay in your house, which was definitely a problem in the Old Covenant. As the gospel and the the effects of the gospel are explained more to Peter, he is becoming more and more hospitable to people who are outside of him, outside of his tribe, outside of his nation. This is the essence of what the gospel does in our community. We talk a lot about having, one of, the, one of the reasons we planted this church is because we wanted to display a distinct Christian community in Canal Winchester and Grove Fort and in Lithopolis. We recognize that it is needed. And like we always say, we're not talking about being distinct because we're really good at being separate from other people. We're talking about being a distinct Christian community that is distinctive in the way in which the people in there, yes, are holy and obedient, but also the way in which that Christian community genuinely displays the glory of God as they love one another. As they love one another without distinction, without separation, without, well, I don't know, you're a little like, you're two generations ahead of me, so I don't care about you too much, or you're three generations below me, and so I don't care too much about you, or, you know, you have this background, I have this background, you're richer than me, you're poorer than me, whatever, you have darker skin than me, you have lighter skin than me. We want and we need a church community that is built on something way more important than anything superficial so that God could display his glory in raising up a church and a community that is spanning generations. It's spanning different cultures and it's held together by the perfect gospel of grace. Notice how God is working this in to his people from the start. That's one of the greatest things about the gospel, is that it is so much more than just one little people group's religion. That there's one Savior who came to unite the entirety of sinful creation back to himself. And he is powerful enough and glorious enough and amazing enough to accomplish that mission. 
In all the division in the world that we see today, we have a Savior that is, greater, that is greater than all of that and great enough to accomplish His mission if we will embrace the truth of that gospel and walk out the, the, the implications of that gospel. So as we kind of apply this to ourselves, I want us to remind ourselves how God has prepared not just Cornelius last week, but now Peter for what's about to happen. God has patiently and purposefully prepared Cornelius last week. Hey, Cornelius, this is what you need to do. This is what's going to happen. And now this week he comes to Peter. Peter, this is what's going to happen. This is what you need to do. I want you to see how God in his perfect uh, sovereignty executes his promises with absolute timing and perfect precision. He's not late on any of this stuff. He isn't confused on any of this stuff. And that means something really profound for you and me. God knows the things that are ahead of us. God knows the things that are ahead of his people. Us together as a church, us individually, you individually. God knows exactly the things that are ahead of us. And not only that, he knows exactly what he needs to do to prepare you for that. So you never need to doubt that simple fact. God knows what's ahead of me. He knows the grace that will be needed to get me through that. And he will provide everything I need when I'm in that. We never need to doubt that. Even when you and I are sitting around like Peter and stuff is going on all around us and we're just sitting there kind of pondering what exactly does this mean? What am I supposed to do? God, have you, have, you know, you've spoken and I, I read your word and I understand it, but like how do I do it and what am I supposed to do? And we're confused as all get out. As we're sitting there, God is still perfectly, faithfully orchestrating everything around us. Right down to every detail. That means you do not have to doubt, you do not have to worry, you do not have to fret. You have a God who's in control. And you also have a God that is faithful to continue the work that he started. Right? The work that he started in Peter, the work that he started in Cornelius, before, before Cornelius even was truly an Israelite, right? this work that he started in Cornelius, he is being faithful to carry it on into completion. He's doing the same thing in Peter. He's doing the same thing in you, the same thing in you today. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this, that the Lord who started a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to what, church? Completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He does not abandon you midway through the journey. He doesn't let go of you. He doesn't hope that you can do the, the back half, the back nine by yourself. Because in Jesus, he makes us clean. As we talked about a few weeks ago, we are made clean. We are saved. We will be saved on the final day. And leading up to that, he is continuing, continuing to make us more and more clean. And kept clean. Listen, not by your power, but his. You are kept clean, kept in the grace of God by the power of God. So because God is that sovereignly good to lead his people, to teach his people, to care for his people step by step, we know he's also good to use us as he expands 
His kingdom individually and collectively. Because it is His heart to take all the separated sinners of the world and in Christ bind us into one new race, one new nation, one new people. Displaying the culture of the new creation so that all the world would turn and look and be in awe of our God. So that you and I would be His treasure, His possession with Him forever. Let's pray. God, we are grateful you are such a faithful God. We're grateful that you never default on your promises and you never turn back and you are ready and willing and able to forgive and, Lord, to empower us by your grace to live righteously and joyfully for you. So, Lord, make us those two things this week. Make us righteous. Make us joyful. May the joy of the Lord be our strength. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.